bow our heads once again. Uh, Lord, give us grace in this place today to hear and take to heart your holy word, your message to us. Uh, grant that I might teach it rightly and well, and grant the hearer's discernment to weigh everything and hold on to what is good. Uh, may the Holy Spirit be the real teacher today, applying to hearts and to lives the truth of your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, before I jump into my topic today, I wanted to, I wanted to thank uh, David Huey for his teaching last week on imprecatory praying. Uh, I, I thought the idea that uh, our capacity for righteous wrath uh, is a part of what it means to have been made in the image of God, uh, that was very insightful and, and um, helpful. Uh, God is certainly capable of wrath, and God is righteous all the time. He's capable of wrath, and so is Jesus. Jesus is sinless at all times, angry sometimes. And, and it helped me think through how, how anger, something not sinful in and of itself, uh, can be corrupted by sin, just like all our other capacities, all our other appetites, human appetites. God made us with, with God-like, made in the image of God, capacities and appetites and desires, and, and sin infects and, and, and twists them all. In, in my own experience, which I, which I doubt is much different from yours, my anger most often... When it crops up, it's easy to think anger is inherently sinful because most of the time in my, our lives, certainly in mine, when it crops up, most often it's been conscripted, you know, drafted into the service of fallen sinful flesh because my, my flesh, deep down, believes that everyone and everything exists to serve its immediate desires. And when someone or something fails in that mission of making things nice for me, uh, anger comes to the fore. I can burn in anger. I have before. I've gotten angry at a red traffic light for staying red too long. An inanimate object, right? <laughs> Be angry, or maybe angry at the person who programmed that or, or something. As, or, or my anger can be stirred against the driver in front of me who's holding me up because he wants to turn left and I don't want to turn left. And he's waiting so long. And he could he why didn't he just take that up? He could have got through. He could have got through. Why are you, you know, so I can get angry. Because what's his... He doesn't realize that he exists to serve my preferences and to get out of my way. <laughs> and I can get angry. I have before many times to my, you know, no, kind of shameful really, but I can get really angry at a referee at a football game who makes a decision with which I cannot agree. <laughs> And basically, I can get angry at anyone or at anything that fails to conform to my immediate desire. So while anger can certainly be righteous, God gets angry. 
Jesus got angry. It certainly can be righteous. Most of the time when we experience it, it is, it's been corrupted by sin somehow. But the anger itself is not necessarily evil. And I found that distinction to, to be very helpful in thinking through that, you know, that imprecatory praying, you know, praying that, the, the, that, uh, that something bad would happen you know, to our enemies or something like, you know, praying judgment on, on people. And, and I also found it insightful that, uh, and it's and helpful to realize that King David, you know, in these imprecatory psalms, you know, that we read, he, in, ultimately, he is entrusting the Lord to deal with his enemies, ultimately. That's what he's doing. And, and I found it helpful to realize that in that kind of praying, he's, he's asking God to deal, he's leaving room for the wrath of God. And, he, and, and that insight was, uh, he's not plotting their demise. He's not working how he's going to get back at them. He's, ultimately, he's entrusting them to God to deal with them. You deal with them. And that insight was very helpful, too. But while he's praying, entrusting his enemies to the Lord, he does offer some suggestions for how the Lord might deal with them. And that does present a challenge to us for understanding how that imprecatory praying uh, can fit together with Jesus' command to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies and to pray for those who pr pray for those who persecute you. It, it, it almost feels like one of those cases where Jesus, and he doesn't talk about it in this way, but it almost feels like one of those cases where Jesus might say, you have heard it said to you, but I say to you. And it, it, it's almost like Jesus is calling us to a higher standard that was embedded in God's will all along, but which has been veiled to us and compromised by fallen sinful man. And so it, it feels like that. But, and yet, at the same time, at the same time, there's that same Jesus in righteous anger overturning the tables of the corrupt, you know, sellers uh, and uh, money changers in the temple. And there's that uh, same Jesus pronouncing a curse on Jerusalem for its stubborn, tragic unbelief. And there's that same Jesus excoriating the Pharisees and pronouncing judgment on them in Matthew 23, for example, for their, for their stubborn unbelief. And he, boy, read Matthew 23, he sure sounds angry. So be angry and yet do not sin, says Ephesians 4.26, as David reminded us. So it seems that we can be praying in righteous anger, that that's a valid thing. But there's also... It's something that really is highly, because we're the way we are, we're susceptible to corruption through our own sin. So, so it seems we have to be careful in its practice. Uh, not reckless with it, not too quick, quick about it. And, and maybe it should be as least as infrequent in our own lives as it is in the Bible, as it is in the way God relates to people in the world as it is in Jesus' own life and practice and, and words. 
Over the course of my Christian life, I have prayed for, in precatory prayers, you know, I have prayed for the death of three people. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean like, Lord, take them out. Smite them. Smite them. <laughs> There's a lot of smiting in the Smite them. Smiting in the Bible. Take them out of this world. The first one was Kim Jong-il, the former dictator of North Korea, the father of the current dictator of North Korea. And I don't know how much, you, I won't go into this, but I don't know how much you know about North Korea, how it's run by its leaders. But the more you know, the more evil you would know that regime to be. You would see how entire families are imprisoned when one family, or when one family member, one person is suspected of being insufficiently worshipful of the dear leader. And you would, you would see f this forced impoverishment, the total control of information, unevening rationing of basic needs, uh, ridiculous attempts at propaganda, the brainwashing, uh, the total cultural atmosphere of suspicion and fear. And that fish, like all of them, rots from the head down. <laughs> and the head at that time was Kim, Kim Jong-il and I... Your pastor prayed, Lord, take them out. Take them out of this world. And the Lord answered that prayer in 2011. The second person was Fred Phelps, the head of that, the former head of that horrible group that calls itself the Westboro Baptist Church, although no Baptist group in the world claims them. <laughs> They're the ones that pick at the funerals of, of well, just for example, deceased homosexuals with bearing, holding up signs at the funeral as people drive into the graveside. You know, uh, slogans like "God hates fags," and they pick at the funerals of slain military dead with signs saying things like "God killed your son." and pray for more dead soldiers. And it seemed to me that the driving force of that group was the patriarch, Fred, a man named Fred Phelps, who founded the so-called church in 1955. He's the preacher. He's the spokesman. He, he, he seemed like he's the glue that holds it all together. And your pastor prayed, Lord, the dishonor that he brings on the name of Christ. Take the breath out of his body, Lord. How, what reason can there be to leave him alive? <laughs> and close his eyes and, and begin to free that handful of people who are kind of held under his sway, deceived. And... and, and because he did claim faith in Christ, I prayed, Lord, if he's one of yours, take him home. <laughs> and if he's not one of yours, take him out. <laughs> and the Lord answered that prayer in 2014. Church continues, but not so-called church. Uh, not 
say so-called church, it's just this family, little fam extended family with a few hangers on. It's a you, you can look up on Google, you can look up the location of it. It's a house. It's a house in a residential neighborhood in Topeka, Kansas. But anyway, the church continues, but not with the energy that it once had. Not in the news like it was for a while. And the family members are leaving, seems, one by one. All those, in some cases, leaving Christian faith altogether. The third individual I prayed for the death of is Kim Jong-un, the current leader of North Korea. Continues the same vein as pop, like father, like son. And so in my imprecatory praying for the death of individuals, I'm two for three. That would win, a, that would win any batting title. <laughs> I'm two for three. And this leads into my topic today. Because Kim Jong-un is not dead. He's un dead. <laughs> He's healthy. He's alive and well. How, how, I'll tell you how healthy he is. He appears to be. He's the only chubby guy in the whole country. There's only one person in the whole country. Even his relatives are skinny. <laughs> He's young. He's set up for a, uh, for a Castro-like reign, you know, of decades and decades and decades. Who knows what will happen, but it's, it's, he's alive and well. And so his being frustrated with God, a, a proper and biblical mood for prayer, because so far, even after the death of of uh, ill the people are not delivered they're it's it's unbelievable what happens over there he's not delivered god has not delivered the people of north korea from their oppression or their cult-like deception why not I, and, and probably you, because I'm, you know, I, I'm, most of you have prayed for my healing from cancer. And while I'm not ungrateful for how well I've done over the past year, you know, our, our, my stepfather died of this same disease. He's nine months from diagnosis to death. And I'm not ungrateful how, how well I've done it, how well I'm doing now, but I am not healed from cancer. In the, in the short term, I, in the prayer list, if you get that, you, you prayed that our insurer would agree to cover the kind of scan that, uh, that the doctors wanted me to have and the uh, kind of radiation treatment that would best spare healthy tissue and to date, that is no. So I get the scans that yield less information, and I get the treatment that more, that damages more healthy tissue. 
And we prayed, and the Lord so far has not intervened in the way that we'd asked. Proverbs says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He guides it wherever he will. So the same would go for kings, would go for in, you know, insurance bureaucrats, right? And he's not turned their heart in the way that would favor me so far. We've prayed for the salvation of individuals who never have or never did come to Christ in faith for salvation, for their blessing, that our joy would be made full. And you, and those are just some examples that known to most people in the church here, but there might be things that nobody knows about. These are the requests that you, prayers that you have been praying for years sometimes. And, he's, and God has not answered in the way that you've asked. And, and frustration with that, and frustration with the Lord himself is a, is a real thing. Is that a mood for prayer? And, it, and I say that because it makes some people stop praying altogether. They just quit. But it shouldn't make you quit, and the Bible shows it. I'm going to read some passages. I'm going to read some passages. And just, but just listen to them. Don't try to turn to them. First one's Habakkuk. You don't want to turn to that. You'll embarrass yourself, you know, you... You know, you want to sneak a look at the table of contents. But listen, listen from, uh, from Habakkuk. Oh, Lord, it's a prayer. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Why, why am I moved but not you, Lord? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That's a prayer. Skipping on down, this is Habakkuk 1. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Psalm. Let me read this. Let me read a portion of, of this psalm as well. And just listen to it. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And listen where it goes from there. But you, who's the you? The Lord. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and derision and scorn of those around us. 
You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, so nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a, a prayer. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Can you believe that God's inspired word would record for us people talking to God like that? Are you taking a nap? Rouse yours. Wake up! But then we remember even Jesus prayed on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to use as my text today a short psalm along the same lines. But it's just song, just six verses long. I'm going to make three points, two verses for each point. It's Psalm 13. And here's the first point. Here's the first point. Leave that up there. I'll read it in a moment. But here's the first point. Be honest to God. When you're frustrated with God, be honest to God about how you're feeling. He knows your heart anyway. And the presence of these kinds of prayers in the Scripture shows us that he values, the Lord values, uh, honesty, sincerity, transparency, certainly over forced flattery. <laughs> here, are the two, here, here are the two verses. To the choir master, a psalm of David. That's the heading. How long, O Lord? Same, same sort of thing, right? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Second verse. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's very much along the lines of the other prayers that I read, right? And there are others besides. Very much along the same lines. No, no effort on David's part to hide or disguise or deny his frustration with God. Rather, he's, he's rather open about it. Here's how it might sound to us. I, I don't understand, Lord. 
What can possibly be the reason why you haven't answered me? Haven't delivered, haven't intervened, haven't shown your goodness. Why do the, why do the wicked prosper and the, and the saints suffer? He, he, won't, he won't punish you for impertinence <laughs> when you pour out your frustrations at his feet. You know, I was thinking about this, and I, I wondered, this is kind of speculative, but when we compare this kind of prayer up here, or Psalm 44, or Habakkuk chapter 1, when we p- compare this kind of prayer to some of the woodenly, ritualistic, flowery, and falsely flattering uh, prayers that we hear sometimes, we, we, that are sometimes prayed, it seems plausible to me that the Lord may find the sheer honesty of a prayer like this, the transparency of it, he may find it refreshing. <laughs> At least it's real. <laughs> at, our, at our Greenfield uh, our Greenfield Bible study in Acts, we've gotten to the part where Paul appears before uh, some VIPs, you know, some very important people. And, and how people talk to them, you know, and these dignitaries, you know, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, you know, but these dignitaries, they, boy, they slather on the flattery thick. Paul's uh, accuser, Tertullus, began his speech before the governor, Felix, in this way. He says, he says, since through you, and this is the Roman governor, just think Pontius Pilate, you know, parallel with Pontius Pilate, but years afterwards, it begins this way. It says, since through you, to the governor, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You remember the situation? You know, Israel can't even run its own affairs. They're occupied by these Gentiles, by these Roman overlords. Can you imagine a Jewish person you know, representing the Jews' case against Paul, praising the Roman occupiers and overlords this way. And then if you take the trouble to kind of research uh, Governor Felix a little, typical gangster-style Roman government functionary, above the law, rubbing out individuals who were inconvenient to him, known for his cruelty, known for his lust. And everybody knows this. Felix had been a former slave, and, but by intrigue and guile and will had done quite well for himself and risen up quite well, but he was, he was always known by his superiors as someone who ruled like a king with the heart of a slave. That's what his people above him said. And yet there's, you know, Tertullus, you're so wonderful, you're so wonderful. (laughs) We've got no problems with you at all. We're so grateful to you for your wise administration. In Acts 25 and 26, Paul appears before Felix's successor, Festus, and, and Herod Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. Agrippa, the last, uh, the last uh, of the ruling Herod family. You know, the, the history of the Herod family, as you probably know, is, 
It's kind of like the history of the Corleone family from the Godfather without the family loyalties. <laughs> without family loyalty. And I was struck by one verse. This is at the Greenfield Bible study. I think it was just this last week. I was struck maybe the week before. But I was struck by this one verse. It says in Acts 25, it says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. That's the verse. So uh, Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp. What's that mean? I can just imagine probably a trumpet that sounds before they come in and probably everybody stands up and probably there's an uh, announcer who says you know with a lot of titles you know and a lot of a lot of flattery about how wonderful these people are these are it's a and then they enter and it's a big deal and and these are very important people and then at the command of Felix Paul's brought in no pomp no no uh, trumpet, no announcement, no flowery language, no titles. Nobody stands up. And what struck me about that verse is that the only reason anybody in this whole world would know the names of Agrippa and Bernice is because of this chance, and not chance because God is sovereign, but this encounter, this brief encounter with the truly great man there who's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who they're there to judge, he's the only reason why they're anything more. That, well, there's still a footnote in history. you know, But the, he's the only reason anybody would ever know their name or read their name. And yet Paul knows how the game must be played. You know, the... He's, he's standing there in his chains. He begins his defense. And he's not, he's not like Tertullus, so effusive of flattery. But listen, he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So here's my point. God isn't like King Agrippa or his wife Bernice or Governor Felix. God is worthy of our sincere worship, but which is due him. But he doesn't need to be puffed up to get a fair hearing. And he doesn't need to be buttered up for him to hear you speak sincerely when you're frustrated. And sometimes, he, he's not Agrippa, he's not like Felix, he's not like Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, to whom the right words must be said or you are in trouble. Sometimes your heart just wants to cry out, Lord, why? Or Lord, why not? You know, Job, Job spoke to the Lord rather sharply, and the Lord spoke sharply back. 
But he's no petty human dignitary that who demands false flattery no matter what you're experiencing and feeling in your heart. He's, he's not a petty human dignitary. He's a loving father who welcomes the honesty, the transparency of his children. So, so be honest to God about your frustration with him when you are, and he knows it anyway. That's the first thing. I've spent more time on that. I'm not. The, the last two points are going to be rather brief because we've had them before in other contexts. We had the same points. But here's the second thing you see in this 13th Psalm. And these will be brief, like I said, but here's the second. Keep praying. Keep asking. Now, don't let your frustration make you give up praying. Here's the three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And the point is, though he's frustrated with God, he's clearly frustrated with God. He persists in his prayers to God. And like I said, many people, when they're frustrated with the Lord, uh, the prayer request been for before him for years and years, nothing seems to happen, or maybe not, you know, the opportunity's gone, and it just God didn't answer that prayer. They, they just sometimes they just stop praying, and it's a tragic failure of faith. It's a, it's more expensive and more tragic than we know. And my weekly visits at NHC, I almost always conclude a visit when I'm in a room, almost always, with an offer to pray for the patient. I say, can I pray for you before I leave? And they usually say yes, but sometimes they don't. One fellow said, you, you can if you want to, but probably won't do any good. And then I, I pressed on that a little bit. I un- tried to unravel that a little bit before I prayed. And it turned out that he had an adult son with a with a disease. And he had prayed for his son to live and not die fervently. And he died. And so he quit he quit praying altogether. He didn't pray anymore. And so that colored my prayer for that, you know, that shaped my prayer for that man when I when I did pray. But don't let that happen. David stays at it. Here, here's a great verse from the New Testament. Um, and, G, and he, this is Luke 18, 1. And he, this Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart. And, and what follows is the parable of the unjust judge a parable of contrast. It seems a strange way to us. You know, we, our minds are you know, taught in the Western tradition. It seems a very strange way to make a point to us, this parable of contrast. But the point is clear. Here's what Jesus says at the end of it. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so you see the tension there, I'm sure. God will, you know, he says, God will answer in his time. And he says, speedily, he'll answer. And then at the same time, they cry, the saints cry to him day and night. 
and they need encouragement not to quit, not to lose heart. So when you're frustrated with God, keep praying. This is what this is what's the biblical thing to do. Keep pressing. And here's the third thing. It's really an expansion of the second point. When you're frustrated with God, reaffirm your faith in Him, which is what you're doing when you keep praying. Uh, in other words, double. It's a challenge to your faith. It's a challenge to your faith. God isn't answering. He's not doing. He's not. He's not doing what we ask. And it is a challenge to your faith. But don't forsake it. Double down on it. Here's the concluding verses. 5 and 6, chapter 13, Psalm, Psalm 13. But I have trusted, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I love the inner, in those two verses, I love the interplay between at least what's in English would be the perfect perfect in future tenses. Perfect tense in English or Greek, and this is Hebrew, but this is uh, but it's it's translated as a perfect in futures. Uh, perfect is something that's happened in the past that has continuing results. Like I have, He has dealt bountifully with me. You know, and so here's the two the two perfects. I have trusted. I did it in the past, and I'm continuing to trust. I have trusted. Uh, He has dealt bountifully with me. He started in the past, and I'm still being dealt with bountifully. (laughs) Therefore, futures, therefore, my heart will rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. And so because, and here's the way I see this. Because of what the Lord has done in the, in the past and his continuing work in my life to bless, I know where this is going to win. I know how this is going to wind up. I know that whatever happens, however the long lingers in answering my prayers, and even if he doesn't answer in the way that I had asked, even if I've cried to him day and night with no apparent effect, I know that in the end, I'm going to be rejoicing in God's goodness. I'm going to be rejoicing in your salvation, Lord. I know it. I will sing to you in, in worship and thanksgiving. Let's, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? Because one of these mornings, he will wipe away every tear. And even death will be no more. And there won't be any mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, or crying, or pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. When frustrated, reaffirm your faith in him so that he will find faith on earth when he comes. 
be honest to God about how you're feeling. Keep praying and keep believing. Uh, Lord, help us, each one of us, to be a praying person and help us together uh, to be a praying church. And in any and every mood that we are in, every circumstance, and may your Holy Spirit help us to pray. May he teach us to pray in ways that fit and are honest and true to the circumstances we find ourselves in at any time. Don't let any lose heart. Don't let any quit. And move those who have already lost heart, perhaps, to believe again and to begin obeying again and to be strengthened rather than failing in their faith. Increase faith in every believing heart here today and let it begin in the unbelieving but open heart. We pray and ask in the powerful, blessed, and holy name of Jesus. Amen.